Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, with the psalmist we say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are the one we treasure as our rock and our redeemer. Speak to us through your word this morning, Lord. I pray that my words would be an accurate reflection of what you would want said from your word to make it clear to our understanding that we might apply it in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, anybody wondering about today's title? First Don. Wonder if Don's worried about today's title. It's not about you, brother. Who remembers The Godfather? Seen the movie, read one of the books. Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather, wrote a number of sequels to it, and a number of movies were made about that. Those stories are about the mafia. So, kids, this is for you. The mafia was bad guys. Okay, bunch of really, really bad people. They called themselves the mafia. That's what this book and this movie were about. And so one of those was called The Last Don. The Last Don, describing the Corleone's family to hang on to power in a culture that was really changing fast. Today, we're looking at what I call the first Don, because I think we'll see some similarities to this mafia theme. So we begin with another movie, actually. It stars a young Tom Cruise as an equally young lawyer who graduates at the top of his class at Harvard Law School. He is strongly courted by a law firm in the South, and the offer that he gets from that law firm is really pretty amazing. It includes a huge salary, it includes a payoff of all of his law school debt, and it includes a leased Mercedes. Pretty good offer. It's clear that the firm has the capability of making life very nice for him. It isn't long, though, before he discovers that the firm's biggest clients belong to the mafia, and that other attorneys who have tried to leave the firm have died trying to do so. And it becomes very clear to this young lawyer that not only does the firm have the capability of making his life very nice, they also have the capability of threatening his life if he should ever try to leave. So, put yourself in the position of this young attorney. What do you do? You could enjoy the good life that they're offering you and violate every shred of conscience that you have, or you could try to get out and brace yourself every time you turn the key to the ignition of your car. To cooperate means receiving tremendous perks even though you know that what you're doing is wrong. Not to cooperate means your life will be made very difficult and possibly very short. So why do I bring this up? I bring it up because the leaders of the Israelites who returned from the exile faced a situation like that, and they faced a similar decision. And how they handled it speaks to the events of our own lives. 
What's the issue? It's compromise. And we find that we are asked to compromise every day of our lives to accommodate our culture, to avoid making waves, to sell out our integrity, to be less than Christ-like. We are asked to compromise in these areas every day. And unless we've made some decisions up front about how we will respond when we're invited to compromise like that, we are likely to cave in. So we're continuing in our study in the book of Ezra. We're talking about building a community of faith. In the first week, two weeks ago, we looked at the theme of the sovereignty of God as he orchestrated events to bring his people back into the land. Last week, we considered the priority of worship. The very first thing that these people did when they came back into the land was not to build a wall around the city for their protection. It wasn't to build a magnificent temple. It was to build a simple altar because worship came first. And today, we see the returning exiles dealing with a dangerous offer. As they face the enormous task of rebuilding the temple, they get what appears to be a really generous offer of help, and they turn it down flat. And in doing that, they offend some people who promise now to make life very difficult for them. Is it worth the trouble? Would they have just been better off accepting the offer of help, avoiding the trouble, and getting the temple built more quickly? Well, you can be the judge. Let's take a look at the situation first. Ezra Nehemiah was built as a two-volume set. And the key players in it are Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel was a builder and a leader, and he was the one who God used to build the temple. Ezra was a historian and a priest, and he came along 60 years after Zerubbabel. He shows up first in chapter 7, but he was sent by God to help rebuild the community. And then Nehemiah was sent later to build the wall around the city. Now, last week, we looked mostly at Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as we considered the priority of worship. But let's fill in a little bit more background now from Ezra chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. So take a look, if you will, at your Bibles, Ezra chapter 3, starting at verse 6, and We'll kind of catch up to where things are as as this offer is given to help rebuild the temple. So chapter 6, what we find is the offerings are resumed now that they have an altar built. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So there's an altar before there is a foundation for a temple. In verse 7... It uh, tells us that funds are being given to suppliers to help them build the temple. Verse 7, so they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they got the money. They're giving money now to suppliers who will provide them with what's needed to build the temple. 
Verse 8, we find Zerubbabel, the leader, and Jeshua, the priest, beginning to oversee the work on the temple, beginning with the foundation. Verse 8, now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. So things are coming together nicely, right? The, the altar's there, the foundation is being laid. Uh, they've got suppliers provided with the funds that are needed for the project, and they make a beginning. Verse 10, the foundation is laid. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. So the celebration begins now that the foundation's in place. Verses 10 and 11 describe that, found that celebration a bit more. And then verse 12 adds a reaction of some who had known of the previous temple in all of its splendor. And while folks are celebrating that a start has been made on the new temple, uh, others are grieving because it, it will be nothing like the magnificence of Solomon's temple. So that brings us up to date, up to chapter 4, verse 1, where a group of people comes up to Zerubbabel and says, hey, we can help. We can help with the rebuilding of the temple. Sounds like a great offer, but Zerubbabel turns them down cold, and we wonder why. Let's take a look at the text and get a feel for what went on at that time. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel... They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in the building of a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. It looks like a good offer. These people coming up to offer to help to build the temple, they live in the area, they sympathize with the cause, they say they even worship God like the Jews do. And it seems that when Zerubbabel turns them down, he offends them deeply. Uh, he turned some potential enemies, or some potential allies, into enemies. Take a look at verses four and five. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. What's wrong with this picture? Why did Zerubbabel turn them down? The answer to that question lies in a bit of the history of Israel that Zerubbabel knew about 
that we probably aren't familiar with. So we need next to, to look at the issue at hand. To find the answer as to why he turned them down, we need to look at 2 Kings chapter 17. And so I would encourage you to turn back to 2 Kings chapter 17. So it's just a couple of books back. You'll have First and Second Chronicles there, and then you'll have 2 Kings there. So turn to 2 Kings chapter 17, and we'll see the background of the people who are offering to help rebuild the temple. These were the people who had been resettled by the Assyrians in the land of Samaria and that, that region uh, that belonged to the ten northern tribes. So Assyria had a practice of deporting all of the brightest and the best from a land and resettling people into the land from elsewhere so that they would stand no chance of ever rebelling against them. And they would leave them with, with no capable leaders. And the people who were brought in and resettled there brought their pagan practices with them into the land. Look at verse 24 of 2 Kings chapter 17. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. What's happening here is, is we are seeing the beginning of a new people known in the New Testament times as Samaritans. This is why the Samaritans were so despised, because they worshipped other gods. They, they integrated a pantheon of other gods along with the worship of the one true God. Drop down to verse 29. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 29. But every nation, all of these people who were now resettled into the land, still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. The Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord. Interesting words. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. See what's going on there? They bring their pagan practices in with them. A little detail, uh, verse 30 speaks of Sukkoth Benoth one of their idols, one of their gods. Possibly the image of a hen pointing to the constellation of Pleiades, the constellation of the clucking hen. You go, well, that's fairly harmless. It's idol worship. It's idol worship. 
Um, Nergal, also in verse 30, is a rooster, probably in connection with a god of war. Ashima is the figure of a goat, often associated with Satan worship. Verse 31 speaks of Nibhaz and Tartak, the dog and the donkey, both associated with demonic activity. Adramelech and Anamelech in verse 31, these are variations of the god Molech. Remember that name from Old Testament, Molech, Melech. Molech was worshipped with child sacrifice by the pagans surrounding God's people throughout their whole history. Verse 32 says, they feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests. Verse 33, they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. In other words, they brought the one true God into their pantheon of idols that they worshipped, and for them, he became one of many. These are the people now who are offering to help rebuild the temple. These people are pagans. These people are polytheists, and their claim to worship God like you do, Ezra 4.2, is a lie. That claim is a lie. They don't worship God like the Israelites do. They've mixed the true faith with the pagan religions of their culture, and they want their plurality of religions reflected in the temple that they're offering to help rebuild. Their desire to be a part of the rebuilding of the temple isn't motivated by a desire to serve God, and, and we'll see that very soon in their actions. Their desire to be a part of the rebuilding is to preserve the religious pluralism that they had come to embrace for themselves and to ensure that the worship of many gods would be incorporated into the very design of the temple. That sort of thing is not uncommon as we look at the history of God's people. Think about in New Testament times uh, dealing with the Romans. Romans didn't mind so much people worshiping God as long as all their own gods were also worshiped. Christians only got into trouble when they refused to worship the Roman pantheon, which included the emperor himself. Presently, Hindus are glad to incorporate Jesus into their pantheon of gods, but it's the exclusiveness of Christians who insist on worshiping God and God alone that's such an offense to them, as well as to postmodern minds in our own culture. People are are happy to accept whatever you want to do as long as you incorporate everything else that the culture is trying to promote. So you may say, well, okay, so it's an easy matter. Turn them down. Don't accept the offer to help build. But even the way they make that offer makes it clear that they're going to do whatever is necessary to be included in the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra 4, verse 2, says, They approach Zerubbabel and the family heads and say, Let us build with you. But the Hebrew actually is stronger than that. What they actually say in the Hebrew is, We will build with you. 
In other words, we're here and we intend to be a part of this. We'll be joining you. They are a 6th century BC mafia, if you will. Every bit as threatening as the firm. They're wanting to call the shots on the rebuilding and they're not looking to God for direction. Their message makes it clear that they can make life a whole lot easier for Zerubbabel and his friends if their offer's accepted. They can also make life very difficult if their offer to help is declined. It's as though they're saying, and my apologies to Marlon Brando here, we would like to help you build. We would like to help you in the rebuilding of your temple. We believe we are perfect for the job because we know your God and we know this area. We believe you would be safe in putting your trust in us and we would be glad to make sure the work proceeds without incident. We would hate to see any unfortunate accident befall any of your builders. But without our help, we can't say what might happen. That's the offer. That's the offer. What do you do? Well, look at the choice. Verses 2 and 3. Here's the choice. Compromise and get help. Or stand firm and get opposition. There is no middle ground. Either they go along with the bad guys and get a lot of help, or they turn them down and get a lot of hardship. The problem is, if you go along with them, you build a temple that has room for all of the local gods and denies the exclusiveness of the worship of the one true God. Is that such a big thing? We live in a culture that says, no, that's not such a big thing. A while ago, I got to address a large group of clergy in the Wausau area. And one of the things I talked about to that group was what believers could do if we joined together in the cause of Christ, what we could do for our community if we joined together in the cause of Christ. And the minister of the Universalist Unitarian Church in town was present that day in the audience. And the offer that I made was exclusively Christian. And I figured I'd hear from her. And a couple of later, days later, I did. I got a letter in the mail telling me that I would do a lot better if I were just a little bit more broad-minded. Just think of the cooperation we get if we included everybody. We could all gain from dialogue with one another. It would be a wonderful thing. And I replied with a brief reminder of the exclusive claims of Christ. See, the idea that comes across to us is this. It would sure go a whole lot easier for you if you just cave in on this one little thing. It's the lesser evil argument. Cave in on this one little thing and see what great help you'll get and what great hassles you'll avoid. We face it every day. A business person who's asked to cave in on his reporting, just falsify these few records, make us look a whole lot better to top management. And by the way, if you don't, it's likely to mean your job. 
or the worker who's invited to come with his coworkers to the bar for a few drinks after work. Be a great thing if you just join us. And if you don't, hmm. The student who's asked to cooperate with a small group of fellow students on a take-home exam. If he does, he'll get a great grade. If he doesn't, can't say what might happen. The homemaker who's asked to lie for an abusive husband and tell everyone she got the bruise by running into a door. If she goes along with that, things will go okay for her at home. If not, can't say what might happen. Kid on the playground who's asked to side with their group against little Johnny or little Susie. Side with us, things will go really well for you. If you don't, they won't. See, we, we face that inclination, that invitation to compromise all the time. The choice is compromise and get all sorts of help or stand firm and get opposition. And Zerubbabel chose to stand firm even though it meant opposition. Look at the consequences, verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Got a lot of hard consequences there. Now, I don't want us to be thrown off by the chronology here. It gets a little a little hard for us to follow at this point. Ezra is writing around 445 BC. Now, you'll remember Cyrus was the one who sent them back to their land. That was almost 90 years before Ezra. So Ezra's a historian. He's gathering things from the reign of Cyrus when the Jews were sent back into the land around 538 BC. And he is now writing around 445 B.C. But he's very careful to mark dates so that we can track this chronology. Verse 5 and verse 24 both mark off dates. Take a look at the end of verse 5. He speaks about all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we have this one date here, talking about Darius, and then jump down to verse 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Everything between those two verses that, that he uses as bookmarks uh, happened in another time, was, was brought into this to help us gain perspective on the level of the threat that's being uh, levied against the people here. So verses 6 through 23 serve as kind of a parenthesis to remind the readers of something that happened actually more recently than that, to help them understand better what was at stake in the time that Zerubbabel turned down that offer. Everything between verse 5 and verse 24 actually happened more recently, and verse 24 picks up where verse 5 left off. Now, here's the chronology. I'm going to give you a little bit of history. Historians among us are going to love this. I find this fascinating. Others 
bear with me, it won't take long. If you look at the chart, the left side of the chart speaks of five Persian kings. I bolded three of them because three of them play significantly in the story here. Cyrus, uh, his reign dates to 559 BC. Uh, Cambyses uh, isn't, doesn't figure in. His name isn't even mentioned. He only reigned eight years. Darius uh, was a significant one who uh, the, the temple was rebuilt during his reign. Uh, Ahasuerus, uh, better known to us as Xerxes, doesn't figure in, but he's got a brief mention in verse 6. And then Artaxerxes, uh, 465 B.C., and it was Artaxerxes that Nehemiah appealed to to get permission to come back and rebuild the city walls. Now, I'm going to leave this up here for a little while, and we'll come back to it next week. And so, by the way, next week, if, if, if you want a better seat, if you want a better view of the chart, the front row is almost always available. So just saying. All right. So the right side of the chart deals with three key Israelite figures. Zerubbabel, who built the temple. Ezra, who rebuilt the community of God. And Nehemiah, who rebuilt the wall. During the time of Zerubbabel, two prophets come on the scene. Haggai and Zechariah. And they motivate the people to get going on the temple project after a 16-year halt that was brought on by the opposition that we're looking at here in chapter 4. So here's the overall picture. Zerubbabel is sent back by Cyrus in 538 B.C. and begins to work on the temple two years later, according to chapter 3, verse 8. So that would be 536 B.C. when he begins to lay the foundation and the people celebrate, but the adversaries step up at that very time. So around 536 B.C., they oppose the rebuilding and they effectively halt the progress until the second year of Darius, mentioned in 424, which would be 520 B.C. So the work is halted, 536 B.C., the work resumes, 520 B.C., there's a, a gap or a, a space of 16 years there where the work on the temple was halted. No progress on the construction of the temple. 16 years. So this temple built by Zerubbabel was completed around 515 B.C. during the reign of, of Darius. Now, we find in these intervening verses, three letters are mentioned in verses uh, 6 through 17. One of them is mentioned in verse 6, during the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. Uh, one of them is, uh, is written during the reign of Artaxerxes. It's mentioned in verse 7, in the reign of Artaxerxes. And this one was written um, by a couple of guys named Rehum and, I'm sorry, by three people, Bishlam, Midradath, and Tabil, verse 7. Another letter is written, mentioned in verse 8, during the reign of Artaxerxes, written by Rehum and Shimshai, and it's the third one that got results. It halted the work on the rebuilding of the city walls, similar to what went on back in, in the days of uh, the rebuilding of the temple. But the local opposition went way beyond just halting the work, 
These people actually demolished the wall and burned the city gates, which is what we find at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah just gets fresh word that the walls have been knocked down, the gates have been burned, and he appeals to King Artaxerxes for help to go back. Ironically, Artaxerxes was the guy who gave permission to stop the work on the walls, and that led to the destruction of the walls and the gates. So Ezra is using these more recent events, events that his readers would be familiar with, to let them know what was at stake 60 years earlier when Zerubbabel was wanting to build the temple and the local mafia offered him help. His point is this, these people were appealing to the emperor. They were appealing to significant power. The stakes were really high. Now, a few sub-points that I think we need to consider. First, there are consequences for being faithful to God. There are consequences for being faithful to God, and they're not always pleasant. It may be difficult to be faithful to God. You may find your life getting more complicated, not less complicated. You may find your path becoming rougher and not smoother. You may find yourself on the wrong side of some very powerful people. There may be a price to pay for being faithful to God. You may lose your job. You may lose your friends. You may lose your family. You may lose your life. But what do you, what do you lose when you cave in? See, there are consequences for compromise that are even more significant. You lose part of your conscience, and it will make the next cave-in much easier. When you've stepped over the line once, it, it, it makes it easier to step over the line again. You lose your integrity. You don't feel whole anymore. And once you've lost your integrity, it is terribly hard to recover it. You lose your witness to that person. You can no longer tell him that you've got something he needs. If you do, he'll laugh at you. He'll tell you, you're no different than I am. And he'll be right. The third sub-point is this. Not all compromise is bad. The compromise Zerubbabel was asked to make was a bad compromise. He was asked to cave in on what he knew was right. That's a bad compromise. But there is good compromise as well. When we back off on something we could insist on, our own rights, our own way, when we back, on, back off on something like that for the sake of a brother or a sister, that's a good compromise. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with regard to meat offered to idols. He knew he could eat that with, with no trouble, but not if it caused a weaker brother or sister to stumble. He wasn't willing to do that. Jesus asks us to lay down our rights for the sake of a brother or a sister. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Have that mind in you. 
as you relate to your brothers and your sisters. Jesus set aside his privilege, laid down his life for us, asked us to love like he loved. So we don't have to insist on having our own way. We can give that up. We follow the law of Christ, which is the law of love. We surrender our rights. We lay them down for the sake of the gospel. But compromise is never the right solution in matters of obedience to God and living a life that honors him and doing what he has made clear he wants you to do. Don't compromise there. When you compromise there, you give up something that you can't afford, and the cost is too great. Zerubbabel weighed the consequences, and he stood firm. And he paid a heavy price for his refusal to compromise. When Zerubbabel said no to this local mafia, it meant a 16-year delay in the rebuilding of the temple. Think of it, 16 years of walking past that foundation every day and seeing no progress. 16 years of worship out of doors. 16 years of sacrifice on a makeshift altar. 16 years of people second-guessing his decision. 16 years of ridicule from the surrounding people. Wouldn't it have been better just to cave in on that one little thing and get a lot of help? I'm sure a lot of people suggested it would, but he didn't cave in. And ultimately, the temple was built, and the worship of God was kept pure. My question is this. If Zerubbabel had it to do all over again, do you suppose that he would still refuse the help, knowing the hassles that refusal would produce? My answer You bet he would, and you should too. Don't compromise when that compromise would mean disobedience to God. Don't cave in when it means selling God short. Don't compromise when it means losing your integrity and your witness. Trust in God and be obedient to him. Give him the allegiance of your life, and he will receive the glory. He will accomplish his purposes in his timing. And your life, however difficult, however short, will count for him. Pray with me, will you? Father, thank you for the courage that Zerubbabel showed in turning down the offer of help from some people who would have taken this temple project and turned it in a very bad direction. Thank you that because of his courage, the temple was able to be built in such a way that it honored you and you alone. And so, Father, I pray that in our lives, when we are faced with compromise like that, that we would not cave in just to make our lives easier, that we would recognize that sometimes it takes standing firm in the midst of opposition and difficulty to uphold your gospel Help us to do that, Lord, Uh, to live a life of love, but a life also of tough love that refuses to compromise when issues are at stake that would make you look less than who you are. So, Father, thank you for the richness that's ours in Christ. Let us treasure that and uphold that in the face of people around us 
who need to hear that message, pure and unadulterated. Help us to do that for your sake and the sake of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.